Welcome to the Liberation Lab podcast, insights and interviews for the disruptive educator. I am honored to have my guest. I'm going to let her introduce herself. So why don't you tell people who you are, what you do, and why you do it? I am Amanda Fawn. Um, I'm always a little bit confused about how to define myself, but uh, essentially I am an anti-racist educator. Um, I mostly exist on Instagram. I'm a writer. I'm a mother. Um, and I do this work because... Why do I do this work? I do this work because it's necessary, because it called me. Um, and I am here to see that through. I think, um, you know, since we've connected and, you know, I've been following for a, a while, for me, you're one of the voices that I, that I look to consistently to challenge and push my perspective. And so as we lean into this conversation, um, you know, you have shared, and, and this is one of the things I love about you, you share candidly about just kind of things that you're going through or what you're experiencing. You know, I always have like people who always want to tell you what you should do and are never talking about what they are personally learning mm. and growing from. They yes. give me pause. Yes. Yes. So for me, it's great to be in a space with someone who's like, no. Nah. I'm still learning this crap too. And it's, mm -hmm. it's difficult. Um, so, so you are an anti-racist educator, but I'm imagining that the journey has been filled with ups and downs. Mm -hmm. Could you, could you talk to us about kind of just your journey as you've stepped into the space of sharing with others, even though you're grappling with things yourself? Yeah. So, you know, I started my Instagram page five years ago, just to document my life as mostly as a mother. Um, and over the course of time, it has evolved to what it is now, which is a space where I build community, where I educate, where we have hard conversations, where we are doing communal learning. Um, and, you know, Basically, to be really honest with you, what changed the direction of my social media presence was obviously um, the summer of 2020. So I am from Minneapolis, St. Paul area. Um, St. Paul is my hometown. So when George Floyd was murdered, it was very interesting to watch this happen in the space that I grew up in, in the neighborhoods I grew up in, and, you know, for the entire nation to be paying attention to these things. Because, you know, the experience of growing up in Minneapolis, St. Paul, uh, none of this was new, right? Um these issues were always part of the fabric of our city. So once anti-racism and activism and these things came to the forefront, it was just natural for me to begin discussing these things because they were always a part of my life. 
And at first, that was really hard, right? Because I had cultivated this space um, that centered just my experience as a mother and my everyday life, just very banal things. And suddenly, there was this explosion online where people were becoming conscious, where people were choosing sides, where we were suddenly, everything was political. And, you know, me speaking out and calling attention to things that were inherently important to me, you know, caused a lot of division. I lost a lot of followers, all these things, um, none of which mattered to me. So, you know, for me, it was just, listen, this is not a choice. I need to push forward and I need to, I need to, you know, like I said to you, I felt called to use my platform in a way that was going to push my community forward. It, you know, it's interesting because there are people who have positioned themselves and they have large followings and they also have the privilege of not speaking, mm -hmm. right? Like it doesn't affect them. They don't have to say anything at all and they'll choose not to, which kind of goes back to, like you said, the call that you felt to, to step into this arena, to step into uh, this role and then the subsequent fallout or mm -hmm the people who would then leave or say things or the trolls that would now post comments. Was that transition hard? Like, you know, I think a lot of people will overlook or say like, oh, well, you're just doing what you're supposed to and then and not see it. So like the emotional context, I'm imagining that it was really, really tough. Um, to say that it was hard <laughs> is an understatement. Um, yeah. It, it was, so it was hard on two levels, right? It was hard to, you know, for all of the challenges that you just mentioned. And it was hard because at the same time, I was going through a personal transformation and grappling with all of the things personally, right? Relating to race, relating to my role um, as a biracial person, relating to my own identity, um, how much space I should be taking up, all of these things. So um, it was really difficult. It was really difficult. But, you know, at the time I had uh, a smaller following, but, you know, it was substantial. And like you said, for so many people, they had a choice, right? And the easy way is to say, like, listen, I'm Switzerland, right? I'm just gonna wash my hands of this. And, you know, you saw a lot of people do this thing where they opted out by saying things like, I'm protecting my mental health, or, you know, Instagram is supposed to be fun, and, or I'm providing a space for people to escape from all that 
that, you know, negativity that's going on in the world right now. Um, those things were never an option for me, right? Um, you know, I, my mother was a white woman, but she was a queer white woman. And I grew up um, going to marches and protests and uh, being a part of movement spaces. And so, like I said, like opting out was never going to be an option for me, but that doesn't mean it was easy, right? Luckily, you build a thick skin quickly, right? Once you make that pivot and you commit to doing this work, you begin to understand that all of that, it comes with negativity. It comes with struggle. It comes with hardship. And you have to make the decision that the work is worth pushing through that. The decision to, to do that and the decision to accept the fallout, whatever that may be, you know, there are people who will, who will say, oh, well, you know, you, you made the decision and you landed on your feet and great for you and, and things like that, but don't necessarily know the added risk mm -hmm. of you stepping into that lane, especially with, you know, the identity piece, the way our world works, how, you know, the further marginalization of you even stepping into that lane, like it would be financially safer. I think this is me and push back. If anything is off, it'd be financially safer. There'd be less risk. You were a mother. Like you could have chosen anything else. Um, but knowing that the call to rest on your shoulders and to say, yeah, I'm going to still press through. I think that, you know, people will tout and say, oh, well, you know, great for you land on your feet. But man, the process of landing on your feet and pressing through and uh, all the things that people will probably just overlook. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I guess in this work, the negative things are very loud, right? And yeah. it's hard to filter them out. And I fail at that a lot because I'm a reactive person by nature. But when I have chosen to press through, I have found such a sense of community, of purpose, um, of a purpose that is so much larger than um, what some folks use their online spaces for. And you know, for me, a huge part of it is, you know, I homeschool my uh, four children and this work has become a part of our life, our family, um, our conversations that we have at the dinner table, you know, um, so it's bigger than me. And yeah. people often ask me, you know, how I don't get to the point where I just want to wash my hands of this because progress is so slow, right? Um, and my answer is always that when I get tired, it is always young people that remind me that 
they are actually the folks who are going to be doing this work in the future. And they are the reason that we are doing the work now. Right. Yeah. Um, and so essentially my kids are part of my focus in doing this. And that, that is something bigger than myself. Yeah. I think about, um, you know, similar to yourself, I started Liberation Lab kind of just as a, uh, a place to talk about with a focus on anti-racist education in K to 12, like that was my focus. And I wanted to just talk about the issues, no real plan, just kind of just went right. And then you realize it's like kind of like a need. Then 2020 hits and everything pivots and people are, you know, hyper attentive to the need for anti-racist and, you know, education and, they're forming book clubs and and then fast forward two years, book clubs become book bands and mm. all the allyship that we thought we saw in 2020 mm. turns to a lot of silence today. And, and it's easy, I think, to feel defeated or to feel like there's like, what's the point? I, you know, if I'm being real, there have been plenty of times where I'm like, I don't know, you know? Um, but I think two things, and, and one of them you brought up is looking forward to the future and understanding that, you know, we have a pivotal role to play in what comes after us, but also looking back and realizing like we stand on the shoulders of giants, mm. like who have done this in the work, in the face of adversity that, you know, is sometimes more pronounced a little bit, you know, um, the, the threats on their lives, the things that they, they had to endure. Um, you know, we, we stand on their shoulders. And so I know I'm not in this work alone. When I look mm -hmm. to my left and right, when I see people like yourself, when I see, you know, others who are involved in the sacrifice that it takes to even to, to, to get one, to get one person to recognize mm -hmm. and to divest of privilege and power and whiteness and the like. Um, and so I, I just appreciate that reminder. I want to ask you, um, because in any type of justice work, uh, we can overlook or not speak enough about healing as it pertains to justice work. That is, there are ways in which I've had to heal from systemic oppression and the like and help others heal as, as they move forward as well. Kind of like a wounded healer, if you will. Mm -hmm. And, and so how integral, and this is a layup question, but you, you'll, you'll take this, but how, how integral has healing been in your work as an anti-racist educator? Hmm. I mean, healing is everything. Healing is the center, right? Um, you know, and, and it's healing on multiple levels, right? It's healing the self, healing the community, uh, healing, and by community, I mean our community, Black and Brown folks, right? People who, who are oppressed, people with marginalized identities, people who have suffered under the social construct of whiteness, right? 
And the controversial bit is that it's also about accepting white folks into our community who want to heal themselves from white supremacy, yeah. right? Um, because what we know is that white supremacy as a system impacts all of us, right? Everybody. Everybody. White folks included, you know, and that is always my message. Like, I want folks to come to my space who want... You know, and I don't want I don't want this to sound like a let's join hands kumbaya sort of thing, right? But right. at the end right. of the day, I want to accept folks into my space who want to do the hard work of reflecting upon themselves, doing inner work so that we can heal collectively as a community. Right. And not all white folks who come to this work are interested in doing that. Right. A lot of times it's about ego. A lot of times it's about, you know, I don't want to give the impression that I want white folks to think of this work as self-care or anything of that nature. Right. Because for white folks, mm -hmm they need to be separating their ego from the healing work that they're doing, right? The healing work that they're doing needs to be internal, but mostly it needs to be external, right? They need to be healing their relationship with oppressed communities and uh, taking accountability for being part of those systems of harm. And that's yep. really hard. Absolutely. When you think about, for me, when I talk about healing as, you know, the, the impact that it can have, particularly for brown and, and, and black folks, I think about the ways in which, you know, you know, a system is working really well when you don't need the perpetrator for it to continue to run. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so... I think I, I I see it in the ways in which, you know, particularly as a, as a school leader, I'm looking at my young people. I'm looking at the ways they relate to one another, the messaging that they've received, how they view someone um, with, you know, lighter skin versus someone with darker skin, the ways that they talk about people with darker skin, all the messaging that they've received, those things have continued to carry on and you don't need to look far for it. Mm -hmm. And so particularly when I think about the, the, the ways in which colorism has impacted our community, the ways in which, you know, this, you know, barring from Dr. Yaba Blay, the, the, the one drop rule has impacted how we see each other, our visibility to one another, our appreciation for one another, you know, uh, I'm going to put all my cards on the table. I am, I am married to a biracial black woman. She is, she is black. She is Puerto Rican. Those things have meshed. And listen, culturally speaking, like I grew up in a, in a Panamanian household. So there was mm -hmm. this infusion of Caribbean. There was Hispanic, like 
when I go to when I used to go to Panama, people looked like me, but they spoke Spanish. It was like this wonderful um, expression of blackness that you know is completely outside of what we're used to seeing. Mm. Now, I say that to say there are ways in which you know my bride will communicate and talk about her experience with other black women. And you can see how colorism has impacted her, how colorism has, how colorism has impacted those who, you know, who affected her and vice versa. And I'm like, man, can we heal from this? Like, how do we begin to, to do that work? Are some of the questions that I ask myself. And so my question to you, um, and as we dive into this nuanced and we're not going to solve it in our, <laughs> our conversation, but just to <laughs> highlight, um, your work as a justice advocate, your work as an anti-racist educator, I'm imagining has been impacted greatly by colorism because of your identity. Could you speak to that for us? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, the experience of being biracial in general is a constant tightrope walk, right? Um, yeah. You're straddling two different worlds at any given time. And so that that is like a lifelong thing and yeah. something that I was used to doing from day one. Um, to do that publicly is hard, real hard, um, because it's, it's a constant balance, right? Um, so... I don't even know where to start with this, honestly. You know, so I guess what I want to speak to is like, I will put my cards on the table. I see a lot of biracial folks who are engaged in this work and I'm looking at it going like, that's not it. That's not it, says, right? So okay. I see, I spent a lot of years, especially when I was younger, right? Feeling like I think a vast majority of biracial folks do. Like I don't belong in the black community, but I also don't belong in the white community. And working through what that means, right? And how do I identify myself and all of these things. Now, for me, I've always identified uh, with my Blackness just because, you know, I was raised by a white mother, right? But she did a very good job at making sure that I had connections to that part of me, right? Yeah. Um, but I think it's very normal, even so, even, even I was brought up in a, a black community. I went to schools that were predominantly black. Um, but I still, there were still times where, you know, I could do this thing where I felt outside, right? So 
a huge part of the work that I have done since 2020 internally has been grappling with that, right? And, you know, I have come to different conclusions that then maybe a lot of people have, and I don't speak for everybody who's biracial or racially ambiguous, but, you know, fundamentally, being half white is a privilege, right? And it requires me to constantly be uh, questioning my relationship to whiteness and how my privilege contributes to white supremacy and how my privilege contributes to harm within the black community. And I try not to shy away from having those conversations, from talking about colorism, from acknowledging my privilege and how my privilege, you know, can negatively impact monoracial folks. Um, you know, it's hard because my audience is predominantly white and these are intra-community conversations, right? These are conversations that brown and black folks need to be having and I'm not necessarily always comfortable doing that with a white audience, right? But I also am not going to ignore it. And what I have found personally is a, a place of such love and acceptance um, from my uh, monoracial Black community, um, from other biracial folks who are struggling, who are having these same struggles and you know it, it it's hard it's hard it's incredibly hard um particularly when you think about the ways in which i say this kind of facetiously so when you look at the cultural upbringing of like for example my wife versus me i grew up being taught to to speak spanish to, to some degree I grew up with a cuisine that was more, you know, uh, Spanish in its origins than traditionally black, mm -hmm. you know, American mm -hmm. black cuisine. She grew up with American black cuisine. She grew up with like, so like she, you would not see the layers of deep understanding, commitment and, and connection to the black community because of colorism. We would see her as different and you would automatically accept me because of how I appear into an understanding of blackness. But our experiences were very, very different. Not to say that that's, you know, that I didn't have a black experience or things like that. And I mean that outside of the realm of pain and suffering, which is what people traditionally mean when they say the black experience in America, right? Like they talk about our pain. Um, but she she has that experience. She's 
she was raised in it. She experienced it. She, you know, and yet when we talk about our community healing, there is a hard time ex- seeing and accepting one another, particularly with, with other women who might be darker skinned and her- because of the ways in which the colorism has done a number on acceptance, who is preferred, um, who is seen and valued and all of those things. I want to say two things before I kick it back to you. When I say blackness, I mean it in its most expansive, the terms that I can mean it, right? Like I, when I say blackness, I don't traditionally or typically just mean people who look or appear like myself. Like when I say blackness, I mean you, I mean my wife, I mean folks in Colombia who you know, are part of the diaspora. I mean, folks in obviously the continent of Africa, Like I mean, blackness, like it is expansive. It is, you know, there is no corner of the world where that hasn't, you know, been affected. And so for me, I want us to embrace that. But sometimes when I look at the effect of colorism and, and how we relate to one another, it's painful because we don't embrace all that blackness can be. Does that make sense what I'm trying to say? Yes, absolutely. You know, and I think you and I have casually had this conversation or voiced this kind of frustration to each other about uh, wanting to expand that experience of blackness to all folks who identify as black. Um, and you know, that is certainly the work I'm doing. That's the work you're doing. Um, it's not necessarily the work everyone's doing. And there are a lot of reasons for that. And there are a lot of valid reasons for that. Right. So, you know, you talk about, you know, you talked about uh, connection to black culture. And, you know, candidly, recently, I had someone say to me in my DMs, like, you're biracial, you have no connection to black culture, the way you dress, the way you talk, all of these things, you know, and I accept that, that uh, I accept where that person was coming from. I don't agree with it, right? Because when we talk about Black culture as a monolith, we are inherently erasing the experience of so many people. And that's what I want to try to avoid, right? What I want to, what I would love for people to uh, come to an understanding of is that we benefit we as black identifying folks benefit when we allow for many experiences of blackness, of black culture, of black identity. Um, I think sometimes my frustration is this, right? Mm -hmm. The goal of white supremacy is to maintain power for whiteness. And part of how that is done is by dividing communities of color. 
So dividing communities of color within the community and dividing us as Black identifying folks from other oppressed identities, right? Yeah. And we, as people who do this work um, on social media, we see that division being perpetuated constantly, unfortunately, by people of color. And yeah. that is so frustrating, right? Yeah, that is absolutely. so frustrating because we are all struggling against a common oppressor, right? Yes. Black folks, brown folks, indigenous folks, queer people, right? We are all struggling against this common oppressor and the only person who benefits from our division is that oppressor. And that's frustrating. There's, there's these, um, these times when you're like, say I'm doing like lunch duty and I'm looking at my students and they're in the cafeteria and, you know, as middle schoolers are, they, they've lost their minds <laughs> and uh, I'm watching them interact with one another. And every so often there'll be this moment where one child is playing with another. A third party will come up and like hit one, but then like dip off, like they're gone somewhere. And now the two people who are sitting next to each other are fighting one another. But really the perpetrator is gone on the corner laughing at the situation. For me, that's what anti-blackness, colorism, the effects of racism has done an our community mm. as it relates to one another. Mm -hmm. We're fighting with each other or looking at each other differently when really if we just turned, we would see that the person who hit us is over there. And I so, like for me, the work that I believe I'm doing, hopefully <laughs> the work that you're doing is helping people to see if you would just turn the anger pain and frustration that you feel for this person is misdirected. And if you would just turn, you would see the perpetrator standing in the corner laughing. And my hope is that it even in just, you know, the moments that we have in this conversation and the moments to come through our, our ongoing work that people would just for a moment, pause and say, okay, what am I real? What is my anger really telling me? What is my frustration really trying to communicate? And if they would just take a pause, I'm willing to bet that they'd see the same picture that we're seeing. Mm -hmm. That the perpetrator standing in the corner and my anger is misplaced. Mm -hmm. But you brought up something very key. And that is the, the term erasure. When I think of erasure, in the sense that I'm trying to use it. And I want you to push back if anything is off here or, or if there's something that you want to highlight. When I think about erasure, I think that, so I'm a, a little bit of a, a superhero nerd. So the, I'm going to use an analogy here and then just follow me. Um, <laughs> I was watching the show called WandaVision, mm -hmm. right? And in the show, did you watch it? No. Did you see it? Okay. All right. I know it's what okay. you're talking it's about, okay. but I, but no. 
it's totally okay. It's totally okay. I listen. I'm a self. Like I understand. Okay, here it is. So in the show, she has lost her family. She has lost her her husband, and she is upset. And in that pain, she creates a new reality. She uses magic and creates, constructs this new reality that she lives in. And it is doing a number on other people because mm-hmm. the other people didn't choose to live in the reality that she created. But now they have new identities. They have new ways of interacting and, and it changes on a whim based upon her wishes. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that is a, a picture of what can happen. Now, now here's where the erasure part comes in. Because they had experiences prior to her constructing this new reality, but you don't get to see that, that at all because she has now constructed the reality. And that's only the lens we're seeing it through as we, the viewer are looking at the show. There are identities. Uh, there are, there are ways of knowing there are, um, there's expertise. There's, there is joy. There is um, so much that I feel like is missing from the equation because we've allowed the constructed reality of white supremacy to help mm-hmm. us or to blind us from seeing each other truly. And so when I see or perceive someone like yourself, I could say, oh, you don't have the black experience. You mm-hmm. haven't experienced what it means to be black. Why? Because white supremacy has constructed this reality that says all you have is a privilege that I don't have. And so because mm-hmm. I don't have it, I'm going to criticize all of your experience based upon what I've been robbed of mm-hmm. versus seeing you as a total human being. And maybe there's something that you have experienced. Maybe there's something that you can add to what we do together. But that's the part. We can't ever function together if all we're doing is allowing the constructed reality to divide us apart. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that part of the issue is we need to be doing two things at the same time, right? And that's really hard. And it's especially hard on social media because you know that the biggest problem with social media is that there is not room for these nuanced conversations, right? Yeah. And necessarily we are uh talking in very truncated forms. We are we're condensing everything down into these little bite-sized pieces and unfortunately that is not how this works, right? So, yeah. right off the bat, social media is not the forum to be having these these uh dual conversations right like this is the format yeah like these and in interpersonal conversations like i have these conversations in my dms being in direct conversation with other people um that i can't necessarily have right in a couple slides on my feed So that is challenging because both are necessary, right? And the duality of being a biracial person in these spaces is in order to be 
someone who is not contributing to harm. We need to be both uh, divesting from whiteness, right? And doing the work um, to unpack how racism affects us. So yesterday I saw a post that was talking about Meghan Markle, okay? I will say up front, I don't love Meghan Markle uh, as the person that a lot of people are looking to to represent the biracial community right now. Um, I don't love that, okay? Uh, and that's its own issue. But the Post said, Meghan Markle is an example of how privilege and racism uh, can coexist in one body, right? So, yeah, as a light-skinned person, uh, a person who has been married to a white man, um, a person who currently uh, lives in a very rural white community, right, I benefit... Uh, in ways big and small from my proximity to whiteness. At the same time, (laughs) um, that does not mean that I have not experienced racism, that I don't continue to experience racism every single day because that is part of being a brown person who lives in a rural white community, right? We have to make room for everybody's experience and for we have to be willing to hold other people's pain and not compare it always to our own right Mm, um mm, mm -hmm. someone recently said struggle is not pie meaning that there isn't like a finite amount of struggle right we all struggle with things and my Personal struggle does not erase yours. So me talking about my experience as a biracial person, you know, I absolutely always want to acknowledge that I do not have the same experience as monoracial folks. Not at all. Right? My experience is my own. And... My experience is going to be different than, you know, if I identified as Latinx, if I identified as, you know, Asian, if I identified as any other marginalized group, right? We have to make space for everybody's struggle and everybody's healing. And that's hard. Yeah, especially when when we ourselves feel unseen and then we turn around and say because i haven't been seen in all that i've experienced what you're experiencing Ooh. is is miles apart from what i'm experiencing and then and then by nature or like just by doing that i've put you in a position where you're not seen and valued 
I put you in a position to experience mm-hmm. what I've experienced. I've replicated that harm again because I've said I myself haven't been seen. You don't know what I'm experiencing, but I know because what I'm seeing in you, your proximity to whiteness means that you aren't experiencing what I'm experiencing. So you go ahead with what mm-hmm. you got because I got something so much more. And so when we do this, this comparative analysis of pain, not realizing Mm -hmm. that it all springs from the same tree. And regardless of if you got a little bit of it and I got a lot of it, we all got it from the same source. Mm -hmm. And if we would take our understandings of, of how it's come to be, to be able to work together to dismantle and construct a new, Man, the power that is embedded in us being together, like that's, that's my heart for healing is I know the power that can, that can occur if we choose to see and value and love each other for who we are. Mm-hmm. I want to, I want to ask you this though, because I think that sometimes the emotional context gets lost because we talk about these things and we say, you know, in theory. For those, let's say I'm a person who has experienced um, colorism as a as a darker skin person, man, woman, queer, however they identify. And I am, um, and I'm using when I say man and woman, I mean that in the most inclusive way that I can possibly mean it when mm-hmm. I say it. Just just for audiences who may be new to me, I I think that when we when I am experiencing colorism as a person who is darker skinned that I can automatically write you in a story of you because, because you are, you know, lighter skinned. I write you as the villain without ever knowing you like you are typecasted for me. So let's say that that's the situation that you find yourself and you, I'm sure you found yourself in that situation before. Let's say someone's listening to this and, and and seeing this for the first time and they say, yeah, but I see her. She does not. Or what is the unseen cost, the unseen um, struggle that white supremacy has had for someone who may not see your experience? Like, take me into the emotional context mm. of the mixed identity as you've seen it. Yeah, I mean, it. it- it makes me emotional to even go there, you know? Um, like, listen, I don't, I have, you know, a, a good size platform and I talk about, uh, racism, uh, outside of myself. I rarely talk about my personal experiences. Um, And the reason for that is because I am conscious as a biracial light-skinned person to not center my experience within these conversations. And Mm -hmm. sometimes I I wish (laughs) that I felt more comfortable um, speaking about my personal experiences, um, I just don't always know when that's appropriate. Um, yeah, so, 
yeah, I mean, I guess in my life, you know, like I said, I personally have always identified as black biracial. Um, I grew up, my, my father is black, my mother is white. Um, but interestingly, my father was adopted into a white family. And so both of my families, my mom's side, my dad's side, were all white folks. Um, luckily, my mom supplemented the way that I was raised outside of the context of our family, right? So that she made sure that I was keeping connection to the Black community because she knew I didn't have that inside of my family except for my dad. And so I think in a way, being the only person of color, like in my entire family, mm. um, I, I, I didn't identify with their whiteness. Like I always knew that I was different and it was always pointed out to me that I was different. And, um, they, you know, they did that in a way that they felt was loving, but didn't always feel loving to me. Um, and so, yeah, you know, and like I said, I, I'm very grateful that I was raised um, in an, a large city um, because it allowed me to have a very diverse experience. But my whole family was from rural Wisconsin. So all of my uh, experiences were, with family were grounded within like a small white community. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I remember being a kid and going to a gas station with my grandpa and feeling like everyone was staring at me. Um, because especially now, listen, I'm 40 years old, so we're talking about the 80s here, folks. And <laughs> uh, things have gotten better around here. Um, but when I was a child, uh, it was very rare to see a person of any diverse background within this community. Um, so I guess what I'm saying is that I was always aware of... Uh, of, I always lived an experience of a person of color, right? And that experience is very different than a monoracial uh, black folks and 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 somebody who uh, visibly presents as black. But I still have my own healing to be doing. Um, and 
I guess that's something that I choose to do more privately so that in a public space, I can center the immediate experiences of our community. Um, because the reality is, you know, it's not folks who necessarily look like me that are being subjected, let's just say, in the context of police violence, right? And to me, it feels immediate that we need to be focused on the part of our community that is most experiencing harm right now, right? But we also um, need to hold space for all of our pain. I was talking to uh, Dr. Janice Gassamasare. She was talking about the triage method, I believe, that, mm. was, um, that was brought up uh, when, in, when it, as it relates to DEI. And, and basically, to, 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 to succinctly put it, when you are giving care in like a war-torn place and people are injured, you look for those in need of in, in, in the most dire need of care first, mm -hmm. because that's where your effort should be placed. And yes. then from there, after you've cared for them, you can then kind of move on down the list, if you will. And and the thing that I want to bring up is I think there's two um Two things can be true at the same time. One, there definitely needs to be a priority on those who are in most need of care as it pertains to white supremacy, racism, and and all the, the ills of that and how the offshoot and off-brand things that come out of racism and white supremacy. Agreed. I think full stop, that is true. At the same time, there is also need for care for those who may have experienced it in a different, however you want to quantify that way. And both of those things can be true. And I hope that for our communities, that we would see that just because I'm in more need of care doesn't lessen the burden or call to care for others. And and so we wouldn't look at it because our world makes us see care and resources as if it goes to you, it yes. does not come to me. Yes. Verse it's, it's not pie. It's not like I'm eating it and then you get let. That's not how this is supposed to work. If we're creating a world that is sustainable for all people, then then these are the things that need to change in our understanding. And it doesn't be that doesn't begin unless we see it that way. And I hope that people who would listen to this or see this after would would see that aspect of things and begin to do the work necessary to make space mm. for the healing of others, even while we need healing ourselves. Mm -hmm. I want to I want to do a couple things in our time. Uh, first, um, as we as we round out our time, I would I want to say I think it's really important that. Um, I will never, you know, it, it is not my job nor my desire to police brown and black folks 
<laughs> uh, um, on the interwebs <laughs> regarding anything that they're doing. There's enough going on. Mm-hmm. I think also, I want to, I want to create space to say, like, as it pertains to me, there are many people who I know who see this picture like we're talking about in the same way. And I want you to feel personally, you, Amanda, to feel that there are spaces where you're healing who and how you show up and all the identities that you carry with you, that there is space to talk, celebrate, heal and all of those things. What I don't want to happen, this is just me talking to you as a, as a, as a friend, mm-hmm. I don't want to happen is for you to prioritize the healing of everyone else that you don't necessarily make space enough for your own in the process. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that you are, or are not right. This is just me talking from the heart to someone I care about to say, since I see you, mm-hmm. um, you are valued. Um, this work does not move forward in the same way without you. And because I value and because I see you, um, I want you to know that all of who you are, you, you are for, and, and for those who would hear this after this, you are black enough. You are Brown enough. Your experiences are valid and healing will be the, the way that we will truly see each other to be able to say that in a pantheon of voices who will echo the same sentiments. And so I want you to hear that from me um, because man, I, I think it's true. And I want you, I want you to take that with you because I know how hard it is um, in the work that we do. Thank you. <laughs> I'm crying right now. Um, yeah, I, I really, I can't tell you how much I appreciate that. Thank you. Absolutely. Um, for people who are listening and and want to tap in and connect with you, mm-hmm. um, what are the best ways to do that and plug anything you have going on so people can can support? Um, best place to find me is on Instagram. I'm at Arbor and Wood. Um, it's a weird name. It's just, I never, I never changed it, um, from when it was my personal page. Um, again, it's, it's a community. I don't necessarily like to center my own identity in it. Um, yeah. So you can find me on Instagram. Um, you can find me on Twitter, uh, also at Arbor and Wood. You can find me on TikTok, although... Uh, that's real new to me and I don't, I don't love it. I don't love it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And community, community on Instagram. We'll put that in the show notes for folks as well, uh, to connect with you. Um, you know, I think, like I said, I'm liberation lab isn't what it is without the work you do. And so I want you to keep going. Uh, we'll keep rocking and rolling this is you know there's more to come and i'm sure we're going to be connecting you know more in the future and collabing on things so uh thank you thank you for your time and thank you for sharing space with me today thank you bobby thank you thank you for hosting this conversation um i really appreciate it i appreciate you 
I appreciate uh, the opportunity and you making time for this.